This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, Ontario Liberal documents outlining how hydro prices will spike in the next four years became public yesterday. The Liberals had promised a 25% cut by June 1st. However, these papers indicate that's not the long-term plan and things will go up from there. Uh, That as, uh, of course, uh, Minister of Energy uh, Glenn Tebow announcing how all of this uh, rebate is going to work. Joining us now, Glenn Tebow, Minister of Energy, Ontario Liberal Party. He is with us now. Hello, Glenn. How are you today? I'm doing well, Scott, and yourself? I'm doing very well, and thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this, Glenn. Uh, your comments on this Liberal document that was leaked yesterday. So um, the one thing is, you know, we've been working on this plan, as you mentioned, to reduce everyone's bills in this province by 25%. We've been doing this for months. Um, and, you know, the, the documents that the Conservatives leaked yesterday uh, were as one iteration of many, many documents that we were looking at with many, many projections that we continue to work at. And so the 25% reduction that we introduced in legislation yesterday will be coming July 1st. But then we also said that we're going to hold that to the cost of inflation for four years. After that, the projections of where the costs will go come from the long-term energy plan, not from projections that Cabinet was looking at when we were working on this piece. And so, you know, that's why I was like, it's not entirely accurate when you're looking at how we were working on these documents. People are going to see this reduction right now, and then we're going to work to take costs out of the system to keep the projections as flat as possible. Uh, You talked about the Conservative leak yesterday. I thought it was a Liberal leak. How do Conservatives get their hands on your papers? Uh, well, that's that's an interesting, uh, like an a, interesting a, question. At the end of the day, it's got to come from your camp, doesn't it? Yeah, well, you know, there's there's also lots of people that work within the bureaucracy, and you know what, I'm not uh, 100% sure how uh, how confidential cabinet documents get uh, get into the hands of, uh, you know, the opposition. But, you know, it, it, it none of it was anything new, because what we've been saying all along is the 25% reduction is coming, thanks to the Ontario Fair Hydro Plan, but the Fair Hydro plan is like remortgaging your house. We did say it's going to cost more, and we did say it's going to take longer to pay off. But we know at no time were we ever talking about a 10% increase in 2028. No, that was not something that was ever talked about or ever uh, even part of our discussions. The projections on where we see our costs going uh, come from the long-term energy plan. In 2010, we have a long-term energy plan that said our costs today should have been on average at uh, about $178. By pulling costs out of the system, which we have done over time, the average bill in, in Ontario right now is $156. And with the Fair Hydro plan, come July 1st, that average bill will be $117. And I've already got our system operator looking at ways of pulling costs out of the system. I already have our Ontario Energy Board through the Fair Hydro plan working with our utilities to see if there's red tape that can be reduced to pull costs out of the system. So we're going to continue to find ways to flatline our projection to keep costs for our energy in this province as low as possible. Uh, Why discount the rate for four years, then raise it? Why not, if we're refinancing this, why don't we start the payments now as opposed to after the election and all that sort of stuff? I mean, it appears that, you know, we have lower rates for the first four years uh, during election time and such, and, and for you guys to relaunch your party. And then after four years, that's when they really start to skyrocket. Why not just have the payment plan start now? Well, 
we are continuing to pay down the global adjustment. So no, but why, it seems that after four years, we're paying more. Why aren't we just paying more now? And have like if we've, we've, we've done a refinance. We've taken a 20-year loan, and we've yep. extended it to 30 years. And then it seems like we've got a grace period for the first four years, and then it really starts to kick in. If we're refinancing this, why don't we start at the beginning and go? So we are refinancing, and people have asked for actually substantial relief, which is the 25%, and then people asked for, for lasting relief, which is the next four years. But that's not to say it's going to skyrocket after, you know, after the four years. We've kept it at the cost of inflation for the next four years, and it's my job with it as the Minister of Energy and the Ministry to, other, to find other ways of pulling costs out so we don't see any large spikes in terms of where the costs are going. By pulling you know, um, the costs out, and I've already, like I said, have market renewal and capacity auctions being reviewed and you know, the red tape, that's not to say that price, prices are all going to sudden spike after year five. We can pull costs out that are actually going to save money and make our electricity more affordable as we continue to see new technologies, as we continue to see you know, the, the, the ISO, our system operator, bring forward that capacity auction, which actually will reduce costs. So, you know, we can't predict where the Canadian dollar will be in 10 years, but what we can do is project where we see it. It's the same thing with... Well, you also can't... We also... Our long-term, our long-term energy plan will bring us to We that. also can't predict what interest rates are going to be like in 30 years by the time we finish paying for this, unfortunately. Uh, let me ask you this, Glenn. Rather than yep. just refinancing this, why not fix the mistake? Why not go back to the initial plan, make corrections... Fix the plan instead of just punting it down the road. Like, again, it's as if we've got a car with a default, but instead of getting it fixed, we're just extending the time in which to pay it because the repair bills are too high. So I'm, I'm assuming when you're saying uh, the plan, you're talking about the Green Energy Act of Correct. 2009. Yeah. Okay. So when we're talking about the Green Energy Act, yes, we've acknowledged that the way that those, uh, some of those contracts back then were procured um, were procured the, the wrong way, right? That's the great thing about hindsight being 2020. But to cancel those contracts, um, that would cost us a lot more in terms of legal fees, uh, you, you name it, right? The penalties, all of those things. So that would be a significant cost. And that's one of the things that the Conservatives keep talking about that would actually cost us more. But what they don't look at is the 42,000 jobs that were created by the Green Energy Act. Having renewable energy in our province has, yes, we actually had, you know, we were the tip of the spear on many things, but it has created jobs. Down in Tilsonburg, they're actually, you know, at the Siemens plant, they're actually building wind turbines that they're putting on a truck shipping it to Hamilton, putting it on a boat at the port, and sending it to the U.K. We've now... Are you know what, Glenn? Why are we... You know, the only one we hear that from are you guys. Like, the only... St- when, when everybody talks about how all the... Talk about all the jobs that are be cre- being created in this new industry, we don't hear any of that other than from you guys, and you always make reference to the Siemens plant in Tilsonburg. Like, <laughs> well, what, that's, that's like the if there's, if there's all the these... I like to use for you. No, I, I understand that. I understand yeah. that. But if the jobs are bloating at the seams from, from all of this, there should be other people talking about it other than you. And the fact is, we just haven't seen that material. But the 40, it is 42,000 jobs from not only, you know, Tilsonburg, but in Waterloo, in Cambridge, in Sault Ste. Marie. I'm in North Bay today, but in Sault Ste. Marie, they're making solar panels that they're exporting to the U.S. You know, we have got a sector here now that is creating jobs and creating wealth for the province. And we want to ensure that that continues. 
And, you know, if people don't like renewable energy, I don't think anyone wants to go back to coal. I don't think any, Glenn, and Glenn, and you guys have this argument with me all the time, and I just simply do not want to go there. This is not about green energy. It's not about that at all. All Ontarians are green. This is about overpaying for green energy. And you said earlier that hindsight was 2020 on the way that you uh, procured these these contracts. Uh, Hindsight is 2020, but that's why we have due diligence. Why was that not done? And how do we have confidence? in your government to do that due diligence on things like the clean energy adjustment or even cap and trade. It's not about hindsight. It's about doing your homework before you pull the trigger. Yeah, well, homework was done. There was no industry. There was no renewable industry in Ontario back in 2009. And that at the time, that was the cost of the contracts. It's great news for us now when we see the cost of renewable energy coming down significantly. So we do do our homework. We do ensure that we make sure that all of the renewable energy, both solar and wind and biomass, that we get it as cheap as possible. And that's why we've now changed. That's why when we're talking about the Fair Hydro Plan and some of the things I was talking about earlier, the capacity auction, market renewal, will make sure that that never happens again. I don't care if it's, if it's wind, if it's solar, if it's biomass. I'm not going to say we need a 1,000 megawatts of wind and then have no competitive tension and have sole source contracting. I'm going to say we need a 1,000 megawatts of power and give us the best renewable power that we can get at the cheapest cost to ensure that it's affordable for ratepayers. So we do do our due diligence. We do do our homework to make sure that we can keep costs low. Uh, talk about the clean, uh, the clean energy adjustment, Glenn, and, and is this, again, when we see, and again, I'm just, I'm being devil's advocate here, Glenn, but, yeah, but, no, hey, no problem. but, I, I but again, <laughs> when we see the clean energy adjustment, we think of the global adjustment, we think of the debt retirement charge, which you guys fought, you know, hard uh, against, uh, and getting cleaned up and we finally did. And, and now we have this, I mean, we're exactly where we were before when, when you guys were cutting up the past government for all of this punting down the road. How is this so, going to, how is the clean energy adjustment going to work? So they, they are two different entities. Um, the debt retirement charge was actually under the old Ontario Hydro uh, entity. When that dissolved and became Hydro One and OPG and everything else, there was some hidden debt there. And that hidden debt needed to be repaid. And that's what the debt retirement charge was. And that's what that was revolving around. And that's how that was taken care of. When it comes to the clean energy adjustment, as we've said before in the conversation I know we've had in the, in the past and talked about earlier, is that the clean uh, energy adjustment is the remortgaging of this global adjustment component that we've talked about. And that's where you'll see those increases will start. And we've always said this, that this will cost us more and it'll take us longer to pay off. That's what's going to start at around 2026 is the repaying of the money that we've borrowed to actually lower rates today to make it fair for everyone who are going to utilize these assets. Let me ask you this, Glenn. If Kathleen Wynne and yourself and the rest uh, were to do this all over again, start from square one right now, what would you have done differently? Um, I wouldn't, you know, when you look at the Green Energy Act, I wouldn't have been so specific in terms of, uh, of what type of technology that we wanted. And that's where, you know, if when I say that hindsight piece, I would not have done the uh, sole sourcing of contracts. I wouldn't have done any of those. I would have been very agnostic and say, you know what, we're going to be neutral in what type of power that we procure to ensure that we can actually get the lowest price possible. That wasn't happened, you know, back then. You know, we were incentivizing an industry and all the things that we talked about earlier, 
that was the one thing that I would uh, I would look at uh, doing differently for sure. Uh, Quebec boasting about all the hydroelectricity they got. Why, why? And and you know you just announced not too long ago that you were going to be purchasing power from them. Why not start there? Why did why did we not start there instead of creating this self inflicted wound? Well, because right now Quebec in the winter time needs to get power from us. They don't have enough power to meet their demands in the winter, and we get real close to running out of power in the summer because they are a winter-peaking generation and we are a summer-peaking generation. So, you know, the, the two, yes, we can actually share that, and that's what part of what we share our power, and that was part of what our agreement talked about, is sharing two terawatts of power. And so we will actually, uh, you know, send some of our power to them, when we have a surplus, they send it to us so we can actually meet our demands in the summer and they can meet it in the winter. So just to say that we can tap in and build a line to Quebec, there's a lot more to it than that. We're utilizing what we can. We're sharing more and more with Quebec. But at the same time, we need to ensure that we can meet our own requirements and our own capacity needs because no one wants to go back to the rolling brownouts and blackouts that we had in 2003 when we couldn't meet our own demands. And that was part of the problem back then. Glenn Tebow has been with us, Minister of Energy, Ontario Liberal Party. Glenn, thank you for the time as always. Much appreciated. Scott, always a pleasure talking with you. Have Take a great care. Day. You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Tom Adams, independent energy and environmental consultant. He is with us now. Hello, Tom. How are you today? Just great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, I was talking to uh, Minister Glenn Tebow moments ago and asked him about this uh, leaked document. Uh, He said that it was a document that the Conservatives leaked, which I I found astounding because what are they doing with liberal documents? Uh, and, And he said that it was very outdated. What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, you know, it, it may be that he's got some fresher material, um, uh, but it, he, he didn't have any specifics that he wanted to correct. The, the document indicates that the government's plan is to run up a $28 billion debt, a new debt, brand new, you know, like this is, um, uh, you know, no, nothing in the in that liability right now, but it's going to go to $28 billion by the time you count the principal and interest um, on this new borrowing that they're going to go for. Uh, you, you know, uh, um, you know maybe, the, maybe the government's got some new figure, uh, um, it, you know, and if the minister had uh, some clarification there, it would, would have been welcome, but he had his chance. He didn't uh, share it with you. Uh, I asked him why they don't just fix the problem instead of just expanding uh, the, the, the loan and, and punting it 10 years down the road. He said if they hadn't signed the, the, the cost of this has all come down over time. And if they hadn't signed these initial contracts for that amount of money, we wouldn't be where we are. Uh, he says that they are and they have been doing their due diligence, but then that certainly wouldn't, wouldn't uh, you know, explain why uh, Premier Wynne called it a mistake. Uh, are you buying into that? Well, you know, I'm, I'm buying into what the Auditor General has been saying uh, uh, consistently, uh, consistently since 2011. Uh, uh, w- whether you look at, again, going by the Auditor General's analysis of the conservation programs, the smart metering program, uh, uh, what's going on at the Ontario Energy Board, what happened with the Green Energy Act, the procurement of the renewable energy contracts, 
each of those instances, no due diligence, no business plan, no, no plan of any kind, just wing it. You know, so the, the, this is the way the government's been running the energy business. We saw it with the gas scandal. We, it, you know, just down the road, it, it, all the major uh, projects that they, the hydroelectric projects that the government forced Ontario Power Generation to do with the experts at OPG knew were losers, whether it's the Niagara Tunnel, the metogamy um, 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 expansion, just over and over again, gross negligence, complete carelessness, and it continues. They're still building out these contracts for power we don't need, um, uh, carelessly procured wind and solar contracts. They're still adding to that that, invent- that portfolio of, of these bad contracts. I mean, it's just they, they can't admit they can't get off this track that they've put themselves on. Uh, what about the clean energy adjustment? Your thoughts on that? Um, they seem to be explaining quite clearly that, yes, the prices are going to go up. Do you think uh, that this announcement changed at all simply because of those leaked documents? Well, you know, the, just the, the simple arithmetic here. Um, is that the, the government is uh, planning, their their plan is to borrow money to uh, pay a portion of the residential um, uh, rate payer power bill in time to uh, uh, have an apparent decrease in cost going into an election. Um, uh, they, they got caught, you know, I, I think uh, with this, this uh, leaked document just explaining to people the gravity of the the, the financial consequences that were going to arise from it. They they rushed out their new legislation. Uh, you know, the new legislation was uh, introduced in the House yesterday. <laughs> you know, you you look at it; it's just obviously uh, uh, carelessly drafted. Uh, uh, le- legislation. You, you can, you can. They had the box of crayons going full blast. Uh, you know, writing, uh, scribbling down these these uh, kind of freeform ideas about borrowing money to uh, pay power bills. It, it, this, this, we, you know, if Ontario's power system was not messed up enough already, they're proposing to create a new in the new legislation a new financing entity. Um, uh, you know, a new government guaranteed uh, a financing entity entity to uh, um, uh, to sell bonds to pay for power bills. Like it, we've already got an alphabet soup of 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 of, of government controlled entities uh, already in the power business. You, you know, you wonder why what they're. <laughs> their their scheme is uh, coming up with expanding that alphabet soup. Uh, the NDP says that's what happens when this ends up in private hands. Uh, how would this be different if it was in public hands? And, 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 you know, my question to Andrea Horbath when she announced this was, it's been in public hands for an awfully long time, or it had been, and every one of those governments, including their own, kept punting the problem down the road, much like this government is. So how would how would this all be in the public hands make it better, or would it be? Well, 
Um, you know, there is a historical precedent for this uh, uh, this kind of electoral panic um, uh, vote buying scheme on the eve of an election, where you've got a government that's down in the polls. Um, Ernie Eves, a conservative premier in 2002, did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and back in the day, um, uh, there was very little. Um, uh, private investment in the power system um, uh, as a fraction of the total power supply it was very small potatoes back in the day. So I, the, 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 the analysis that claims that all of these problems with our power system all derive from uh, uh, privatization, you know, that's, that's really not a very a deep analysis. It, it doesn't get at, at some of these more basic problems. Are people going to buy into the clean energy adjustment? This is another, just another line that's been added to your power bill uh, that they can, they can suck more money out of you. This is no de- I mean, they were screaming about the debt retirement charge, uh, the global adjustment. Now they've just added another line. I mean, what difference does it make if you keep rates relatively stable if the clean energy adjustment keeps increasing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's no different than the global adjustment, is it? No, no, that's right. You're just kind of adding these these amorphous line items. But you know, and just before we let this pass, it's true that the residential customer class doesn't see on their bill the debt reduction charge anymore. But all your business listeners, they're all seeing it. Mm. Like this thing is not gone. You know, one of the things we should learn from our electricity history is that when you make these big mistakes and you push costs down the road, eventually they come back to bite you. Um, And the world we're living in today is is a world where we've had this accumulation of all of these bad mistakes historically. You you know, one of the things that drives me so crazy about what uh, Glenn Tebow is talking about here, he claims that we're just simply, it's just like refinancing a mortgage. Hang on a second, buddy. Like, you know, if you're refinancing your mortgage, you own your home. Yeah. Right? This is is not refinancing a mortgage. This is um, uh, taking out a payday loan every month to cover a chunk of your rent check. Yeah. That's the plan. You know, any financially responsible person would would just run screaming away from such utter nonsense. And just the fact, I mean, he seems like a nice enough guy, but but you know, to to kind of push this on, you know, as as if claiming that this is fair. Yeah. Give me a break. Fair to the customers down the road that are going to be paying for this? They get no power, they just get the bill? Come on. Uh, how is business responding to all of this? Well, I'm really concerned about the potential impact on business. When we get around to having to repay these bills, there's going to be a new government, you know, whatever color of tie they're wearing at the time. Um, uh, when, when these bills come due, um, uh, they're going to start looking around, and if if history is any guide, what is likely to happen? Notice that that the business customers all still pay the debt reduction charge on their bills today. 
they're very likely to be on the receiving end for recovering some of these costs. When government starts talking, oh, the fairness of the recovery of these costs, we can't put it all on, on voters. That would be terrible. We have to go to the polls. We can't do that. And so I'm just very concerned that this new liability is going to be recovered in part from business consumers, and they're already overburdened by all this garbage that's packed into their power bills. So obviously this leaked document yesterday uh, pretty much uh, concluded that after four years of controlled increases, then boom, it would start to take off. Tebow said that those numbers uh, were outdated and and were not correct. How high are rates going to go? Do we know? No, no, we we don't know. Um, uh, and, you know, and, and his forecasts, uh, um, you know, even if he bothered to share them with us, uh, you know, I'm not sure how believable they would be. Um, uh, he, he, uh, the, the, the costs of running the power system, uh, you know, are a function of these, these accumulation of historic decisions, but they're also a function of the demand for electricity. And the government doesn't have control over that. Electricity consumption in Ontario has been falling since 2005. We're down big time. Um, uh, and it, so, you know, with, with declining sales, um, uh, of electricity when you've got a fixed amount of money or rising amount of money that you've got to collect, that's itself driving up uh, um, the cost of, of power. So, you know, these, the, 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 the long-term projections, of, you know, about, uh, about supply and demand and prices and all that kind of stuff, that's really tough country. And, you know, again, if learning from history, um, um, uh, a lot of things that seemed like received wisdom in the past about long-term forecasts just never came true. So don't spend, spend too much time fretting about that. Uh, Tebow also said 40,000 jobs have been created in this industry. Why don't we hear about that? The only ones we hear that from are the liberals. We don't oh. hear it in, from business people. We don't hear it in the press. And it's not because we're not looking for it. It just doesn't seem to be around. Where are, Have there been jobs created by this? Those numbers are just phony junk. Just the same as the rest of the stuff that these people pump out. The way they calculated these numbers, they got some standard ratio for um, if a businesses invest a billion dollars in the, in the Ontario economy, it translates into this number of jobs on, on average. What, what the, these calculations don't take into effect is that the power industry is the most capital-intensive segment pretty well of the entire economy a billion dollars doesn't produce very many jobs whereas you know a billion dollars in in restaurants and small manufacturing and and you know automobile servicing or whatever there's lots of jobs associated with that but but just applying these averages, uh, uh, which is how the government has calculated their initial promise that they were going to deliver 50,000 jobs, now they're down to 40,000. It, it, it's it's just all a, a, just arithmetic. Game. Well, if this was a gold mine and jobs were be, being created, we would certainly be hearing about it, wouldn't we? We'd be hearing about this from business people, not from politicians. Oh, it, it, 
there there are a handful of jobs that depend on the on the rich subsidies that uh, electricity ratepayers are are picking up the tab for. Um, uh, but what 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 his numbers don't. It, it, like you know, of course, you know there's a few manufacturing jobs at a Tilsonburg plant that he refers to. Yes, that's true. What he doesn't refer to is all the jobs that are lost when the high electricity bills filter down. So the household income gets sucked up. You know, a lot of disposable income going into electricity it didn't used to. So they're they're you know they can eat out less. The uh, um, the, the, the electricity intensive employers, they. That, you know, some of them are shipping out their 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 work. Um, uh, uh, public institutions, hospitals, schools, they, as their costs go up, you know, tax impacts or uh, availability of funds for other services, all those things going down. So, the, you know, it's it, it's not fair to just count one side of the equation. Oh yeah, so we spent some money, therefore jobs created. How many jobs were lost? When this was studied carefully by some economists in Spain where they did similar kinds of programs, Ontario modeled itself on Spain, they found two jobs lost for every job gained. Hmm. Joining us have been Tom Adams, independent energy and environmental consultant. Tom, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Terrific, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's uh, focus our attention to south of the border, uh, discussing the developments in the Trump case, uh, the Trump uh, Comey saga. Trump broke from his previous claim that Comey was fired. That's the FBI director over the mishandling of Hillary Clinton's emails just prior to the election. Now saying it is because of, uh, well, uh, among other things, uh, Comey being a showboat, that Russian thing and that everybody had just lost confidence in him. Uh, Trump also tweeted this morning that Comey had better be careful there aren't any tapes of their previous conversations before talking to the press. What does it all mean? Let's bring in Charles Walcott. He is a professor emeritus of political science, Virginia Tech, and is with us now. Hello, Charles. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you very much for taking the time. We greatly do appreciate this. So, uh, Charles, your thoughts. How do you explain the White House saying that uh, FBI Director Comey was fired for his handling of the Hillary emails prior to the election? Now it seems that Trump was going to fire him anyway. What are your thoughts on all of this? Well, the White House at that point seemingly was running around like the Keystone Cops trying to create explanations. Uh, Trump had tried to create what was, in effect, a cover story about uh, the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, having advised him to fire Comey. It turns out Rosenstein did no such thing. And the various parts of the White House that should have been in on planning any such uh, action were left in the dark. The, The press office didn't know until about an hour before he did it, that Trump was going to fire Comey, so there was no way for them to create a game plan or to have people in place with a consistent explanation. And as a result, they wound up giving explanations that wound up uh, being retracted or ignored later on when Trump himself decided to step in. So how do you explain that? Uh, Is this just Trump creating more problems for himself, or was Comey's investigation getting too close for comfort? I wish I knew. Uh, At the very least, the former. 
at the very least he created more problems for himself Trump does not seem to have understood yet that uh, his claim to have talked to Comey about the investigation puts him in jeopardy. Uh, he, he seemed to want to clear himself, but what he wound up doing in that interview with Lester Holt was, was two things. One, he admitted that it was all about the Trump investigation, not anything to do with Hillary Clinton. Hmm. And secondly, he admitted to crossing what is at least an ethical line when you're trying to get information from someone who is investigating you and whom you could and, and did fire. That's, so, that's an absolutely forbidden behavior, and Trump either didn't know it or didn't care. So if Trump isn't guilty, why is he acting like he is? Uh, that's the question that's on everybody's lips. I, I, I can't give you an answer except to say that Trump is so self-confident that he thinks he can get away with anything, and, and, and that includes ignoring the usual strictures and limitations on presidential behavior. So when he steps over the line, it's not necessarily anything calculated. He's highly impulsive, and he just feels that if he says it, it must be true. So is this a president with... Uh, uh well, you can call it whatever you want, uh, shoots from the hip, or is this someone trying to cover himself up? I mean, it doesn't appear that even the White House knows. No. Uh, the, rest, the rest of the White House is in disarray right now. People are not sure what the, what the line of the day even is. Uh, yes, he is a president who hit, shoots from the hip, but he also may know more than we think, or mm. more than he's admitted, about how close this investigation is coming. Uh, certainly an awful lot of people who have experienced the Watergate affair, which was also about a, a, a shooting from the hip and cover-up kind of thing, uh, have noted the strong parallels here. And that's about all you can say right now. We don't really have the facts, but we can certainly say that in the narrative it looks an awful lot like Watergate. Uh, and then uh, Trump tweets today, uh, better hope there are no tapes of any of this. Would there be tapes? Uh, again, I won't even ask a question. I'll just ask you your thoughts. <laughs> the, uh, I want to talk about going back to Watergate again. Here we are with tapes. Uh, I don't know who would have taped a conversation of that sort. We would hope that it wasn't the president doing so because that would put him in a position of, of conspiratorial behavior that would that would at least embarrass everybody. But is it not him admitting that, in fact, he recorded the conversations? I mean, isn't that what he's alluding to? Or certainly certainly not crea certainly creating the confusion? Yeah, my guess is that he's bluffing. Uh, my guess is that he's trying to get Comey to not talk. And uh, that won't work. I suspect that the, the, the next shoe to drop will probably be whatever Comey has to tell at least the uh, Senate investigating committee and possibly the public about what really went on in his conversations with Trump. I think Trump is, is, is doing what he can in the middle of the night on Twitter to uh, discourage Comey from contradicting Trump's story, but I, I don't think Comey is in a position where he needs to worry about that. He'll tell the truth. Uh, when will we hear from Comey on this? 
it's not clear. Last I saw, he had been invited to testify in closed session before the Senate committee. I believe it was uh, the invitation was for Tuesday, and he had not yet responded. So the answer is still up in the air. Uh, would Comey not feel that, you know, for his own his own sake, that he needs to clear this up? Yes, I think he would. That's is he, is, he, is he obligated to keep anything secret at this point now that he's out? Now that he's been fired, his obligations are ethical, not legal. Uh, I think Comey, from everything I know about him, has a strong sense of rectitude when it comes to uh, the handling of confidential investigations and so on. But I think in this case, rescuing his reputation would probably be the the first priority and telling the truth or at least most of the truth would be that would be the next priority so short of revealing anything that would would hinder the investigation itself i i would expect him to come clean on his own behalf uh getting back to the recordings uh trump saying he uh, comey had better hope that there's no recordings of this um, who would that incriminate? How could that incriminate Comey? <laughs> it couldn't. Uh, it could embarrass which Comey. Would leave, which would leave one to believe that it could only incriminate Trump. And how does he not see him shooting and putting another bullet into his own foot? Uh, that is I know I'm asking you questions you can't answer. I can't answer it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, where where do we go from here? How how does how does Trump move this forward, especially while keeping it alive with another tweet this morning about recordings? Yeah, it, it's you talk about shooting yourself in the foot. The more he says, the longer it's going to go on. Uh, he keeps creating new news stories, so it, it it's really hard to say. I think. We, the next thing we need is to hear from Comey and maybe from uh, Rod Rosenstein about their accounts of, of these issues. There's also going to be pressure on Attorney General Sessions to explain what he was doing, giving advice on a matter he had promised not to touch, that is, the investigation of, of Trump's campaign. So I, th- I think there are an awful lot of questions just surrounding this immediate uh, firing of Comey that are going to have to be brought up and pulled out both by the media and by the congressional committees who are investigating the whole thing. Uh, Charles Walcott is with us, professor of political science, Virginia Tech. Uh, Charles, uh, in the dismissal letter to Comey, uh, it-, it was said that Trump told him... Uh, or sorry, that he told Trump three times that he was not being investigated. Why would he put that in the letter? And is that something that an FBI director would do or respond to? Uh, It's not something that an FBI director would do, and I strongly suspect that Comey will deny ever having done it. He's apparently uh, given a different account to, to his friends. The account he gave to his friends is very telling. He says that, in effect, Trump at dinner, pressured him to declare his loyalty to Trump. Wow. Comey wouldn't do it. Comey said he would be honest. He didn't say he would be loyal. Trump asked him again, got the same answer, and Trump apparently was dissatisfied with this. That makes Trump look terrible, because 
FBI directors are supposed to be loyal to the mission of the FBI, but otherwise nonpartisan, and certainly not to be lackeys of the politician in charge. So that's where I think that this thing is going. I think it's going to make Trump look even worse. Uh, and I, again, I don't think probably that there is a tape, so it's going to be he said, he said. But certainly Comey has already contradicted Trump's account. Why did Trump put that in there? Because when Trump gets impulsive, he gets impulsive. He was trying to create a different story, a story about Hillary Clinton's emails, but he just couldn't help himself putting this self-absolving comment about the three times he talked to Comey in there. Uh, that just sounds to me like it came right off the top of his head. How do you think, what do you think the buzz is like inside the White House right now? I mean, clearly they're trying to do the best for their commander-in-chief. He, he, he's sort of shooting from the hip and putting them in, in, you know, vulnerable situations. What do you think, do you think there's, how much tension do you think there is in the White House right now? And, and where does this go? Does this just keep, does he just keep getting hotter and hotter and hotter till he snaps? I mean, what happens here? Where does this, yeah, how does this move forward? Those are the questions. Uh, my guess, and again, I, I'm not part of the White House staff, so I can't really say, but from what I've read and what I know about the White House, my guess is that on a scale of 1 to 10, the tension level is about a 12. Uh, right now, they see the presidency falling apart in, in, in significant ways. And if I know this White House and its behavior, even in the first 110 days or so, the chances are very good that people are looking around for someone to blame, and that would be each other, because this has been a circular firing squad pretty much the whole time. So right now, people are scrambling to cover their own backsides, and also I would think that particularly the Chief of Staff, Reince Priebus, is trying to figure out a way to get control of this whole thing, but without the president seemingly trying to restore order, it isn't going to happen. So, I, you know, if I were in the White House right now, I think I'd be thinking about my next job. Hmm. Where does this leave the investigation into Russian interference? Will this investigation continue? Can it still be credible? The investigation by the FBI will continue, I'm sure. They've pretty much put themselves on the line about that. And I would think it would be credible, because I would think that it'll, certainly at least the acting director seems to be, McCabe seems to be a straight shooter. Uh, Rosenstein, who is the direct supervisor on this one from the Justice Department, has a tremendously good reputation that he now needs to redeem. Uh, so I would guess that the FBI investigation will go forward. It's going to take a long time. Uh, th these aren't things that happen in, in rapid succession as a rule. Uh, where the congressional investigations go is harder to say. If there are any further embarrassing revelations, I, I cannot think but that they, they'll finally cave and, and, and name a special prosecutor. That was my next question. What do you think the chances of that happening? I think, I think probably uh, I would put it about 70-30 that they will. That, Can... that ultimately, this sim simply anything partisan in the middle of this just has no credibility. Can Trump influence that sort of investigation? Can he try to derail it as he has this one? He can try.
try, but what we've seen is that he's not very subtle and probably would be discovered trying. And uh, if that happened, we're talking impeachment. Where, uh, one last question, where does this leave the Democrats? Obviously, the Democrats wanted Comey out. Uh, obviously, that was worked into to Trump's plan to, to try to wash this without anybody really noticing. Where are they now? Hillary is sticking her head back out, out of the sand at this point. Is that a good move for the Democrats? Uh, when do they need to start moving forward as a party? It's hard to say. I think right now, as long as Trump is in the process of what appears to be perhaps self-destruction, the best stance for the Democrats is to the sidelines, to mm. look responsible, make grave statements, and, and, and don't act as though you're organizing politically to exploit the whole thing. That'll come later. That'll come in the, in the campaigns next year. So I, I, I don't, a lot of people are saying, you know, the Democrats ought to be doing something now. I'm not so sure. I'm not sure you can do anything now and come out looking good. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, old political rule, why let the, uh, why jump into something when your opponent is uh, shooting themselves in the foot? Uh, Do you think Hillary should stand down? Uh, Should Hillary disassociate herself now and and let the next generation take over, or should she still be up there as as the face of this party at this point? I I think she, the the former, I, I do think it's time for new faces and new blood uh, there are probably a lot of Democrats who could have beaten Donald Trump, but Hillary Clinton wasn't one of them. And I, I don't think the party should be living in the past. It, it, it's going to be a struggle to find new faces and new leaders. That That's a process that's going to take two or three years. But it has to happen. Uh, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, those are people who remind you of the past. I think at some point new blood's going to be needed. Have traditional politicians or parties learned anything from this? I mean, rather than, you know, poking the bear and saying all bad things about their opposition, are they missing the point? Have they learned how all this happened in the first place? Have they learned anything from this exercise? Yeah, I think the parties have learned, but I'm not sure they can do anything. They've learned that weak political parties that can't responsibly vet the candidates I'm thinking particularly the Republicans this past year, uh, are going to get stuck with situations they they didn't create and don't like. Uh, I think that what we, what we have is a condition of extreme partisanship out there among the public, but a, but a very weak organizationally, very weak political parties. The parties have got to do something, perhaps with with finance laws or something to regain their role as responsibly vetting and promoting uh, good candidates. If the, if the Democrats should be doing anything now, and they, and they are, it, it, it's finding good candidates and encouraging them to run and trying to make them as reliant on the party as possible so that the party itself will, not, will, will gain as well as, as individuals winning elections. For the Republicans, uh, it's more a matter of looking at the past and saying never again. <laughs> Charles Walcott has been with us, Professor Emeritus of Political Science, Virginia Tech. Charles, thank you so much for the time. Fascinating and uh, very much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.